the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. This is our third film in a row this year that's pretty serious, but uh, <laughs> it was really kind of hard not to to go with The Godfather here. Um, it being its 50th anniversary. It was released uh, March of 1972. 50 years is such a long time, and you look back on this movie, and of course it looks dated just as a movie that's 50 years old would, but it plays just as effectively now as it did then. Yeah, even though this movie is a period piece and takes place in the 40s, to me, The Godfather is sort of the the dawn of the modern film. I think this is the first movie I look back on that's 50 years old, and it feels kind of close to how movies are still made today. Movies from the 50s and before that, a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies, you know, feel very, like, staged you know mm-hmm. they're on yep. they're on a studio lot. This movie feels a little more authentic, but not as rough and tumble as the movies from like the late '60s. You know, the, this one it has it has a little bit of looseness to it, but it also feels like a lot of spectacle and also to like more naturalistic acting. I'm glad we're doing this movie because probably one of the most loved films in American movie history. This always ranks number one or number two on people's lists of like the best movies ever made, whether it be like AFI or just a random like list ranked on the internet. And I do think it is one of the more important and influential films, even though I I can think of a dozen films I like better than The Godfather that I think are better than The Godfather, however blasphemous that may seem. I do think that this movie, for the time period that it came out and what it did and how successful it was, um, still stands as like a very important film for American cinema. I think it's hard to look back on a movie like The Godfather and realize how much it did change movies that involved the mafia at the time. Like before movies about organized crime and the mob, it was all these moralistic tales where the police were the the main guys trying to take down these guys. The main mobsters always going to die at the end. They were moralistic stories and it was more about crime doesn't pay. With The Godfather, it allowed for other stories to be told and how corruption went from the very top of the government all the way down to every facet of society. And also along with just movies involving the mafia, this is the first time we've really seen a story that had any truth behind what an Italian-American family looked like. In a lot of ways, there is a romanticized version of what happens in The Godfather, but a lot of Italian-Americans finally felt seen when The Godfather came out. And a lot of that authentic Italian-American representation, I think, is greatly due to director Francis Ford Coppola, who was drawn to the movie specifically for that reason. And the studio wanted an Italian-American to direct the movie, at least in the beginning. That was their hope, anyway. This is another film where we've had this happen before on the podcast, where the making of the movie is just as exciting and intriguing as the movie itself. And this is uh, one of the big battle story movies of a studio clashing with a filmmaker and a filmmaker fighting back. We're going to get into a lot of that, a lot of the behind the scenes, uh, Francis Ford Coppola going up against 
a studio and talk a little bit about that time period of where the studio system was at. Um, because I really don't think that you would have this anymore. I mean, I think it's been like a long time gone that the studios are not 100% in full control. I mean, I just don't think you would have a story anymore of a filmmaker being able to battle a studio. And so we'll get into a little bit of that. We'll talk a little bit about Francis Ford Coppola. We'll talk about the cast because most of these actors now are like household names. Um, but this was uh, the humble beginnings of that. We'll talk about uh, the real life mob that uh, sort of intersected with the making of The Godfather. And uh, we'll talk about the release and reception and how this movie, 50 years later, is still one of the most acclaimed films of all time. We'll get into the personality of the movie with the cinematography, music, just everything that really makes this movie what it is. And for you Godfather fans out there, you know we're going to talk about those sequels too. This episode's guaranteed to run a little bit longer. This is a lengthy film, um, and not in a bad way. It's interesting to me how much longer films are these days. There's Marvel movies with running times that outrun the godfather which is nuts to me there's a lot to talk about here so we may go on for a little bit but after the godfather we'll get into our picks of the week this was a tough one because there's so many directions to go to connect my pick of the week to our main feature so my pick of the week i went the james con route um, i didn't think that we'd ever do uh, thief as a main feature yeah we've talked about it yeah but, but I, I wanted to get in as a pick of the week and i just recently watched it and uh, it's such a good movie so i'm gonna talk about Thief and you did a Francis Ford Coppola movie. I did. I went with one that probably was the first Coppola movie that I ever saw growing up and that was Peggy Sue Got Married. And this is a movie that I've probably heard you bring up like <laughs> I don't know five dozen times since I've known you and I, I've been waiting for this this movie to to show up as your pick of the week. I've been just I've just been waiting for another chance to talk about Kathleen Turner again but I really do love this movie and yeah I can't wait to talk about it. We'll get into that soon and our Murray moments. But uh, before we go to our first clip from The Godfather, um, Lindsay, can you give us a brief lowdown, your interpretation of what this simple yet sometimes confusing story is about? Before simply calling this a mob movie, The Godfather is a story of a powerful Italian-American family whose patriarch has carved a highly respected path for his sons in the family import business. The Corleones also happen to be one of the most powerful organized crime families in the New York area. Don Vito, also known as the godfather to those whose loyalty belongs to the Corleone family, has an even rationality to his wisdom, someone to whom people seek advice. Set in the 1940s, spanning 10 years in the attempted murder of Don Corleone, it's clear the torch must be passed to one of the most clear-headed of his sons, Michael. Once a Marine who avoided the family business, complete with a partner too innocent to understand the Corleone's mafia involvement, Michael takes over as the Don. This is a story of succession, family, betrayal, violence, revenge, and ultimately, loyalty. The Corleone family controls it all. Don't ask too many questions, and do not, above all else, cross the family, because Michael Corleone is not a warm-hearted diplomat like his father. Thanks for that summary. It is a lot about um, him being different from his father. And there are so many intricate things involved with the plot it is from like point a to b to c to z eventually it would be impossible to put all of that in a short synopsis for this purpose well i think you did just fine oh well thank you well let's go to our first clip then we'll come back we'll get into the godfather i need a man who has powerful friends 
I need a million dollars in cash. I need Don Corleone, those politicians that you carry in your pocket, like so many nickels and dimes. What is the interest for my family? 30%. In the first year, your end should be three, four million dollars. And then it would go up. Now, what is the interest for the Tatalia family? I'll take care of the Tatalias. Out of my share. So, I received 30% for finance, political influence, and legal protection. That's what you're telling me. That's right. Why do you come to me? Why do I deserve this generosity? If you consider a million dollars in cash, just finance, I said that I would see you because I heard that you were a serious man to be treated with respect. But uh, I must say no to you, and I'll give you my reasons. It's true, I have a lot of friends in politics. But they wouldn't be friendly very long if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they regard as a, a harmless vice. But drugs is a dirty business. Oh, don't it, make, it doesn't make any difference to me what a man does for a living, I understand. But uh, your business is uh, a little dangerous. If you're worried about security for your million, the Tatalias will guarantee it. Oh, are you telling me that the Tatalias guarantee our investment? I have a sentimental weakness for my children, and I spoil them, as you can see. They talk when they should listen. But anyway, Senor Sonotso, I know it's final, and I wish to congratulate you on your new business. I know you do very well, and good luck to you. Especially since your interests don't conflict with mine. Thank you. So with a lot of the movies that we've talked about on the podcast, this movie is an adaptation of a book. There's always that argument that can be made of, was the book better? Or was the movie better? I think a strong case could be made for the movie being better than the book in this case. The book itself is more of a, it's been considered like trashy. You know, there's a lot of sort of sleazy subplots and a lot of uh, melodrama not that those things don't exist in the movie, but I think the movie takes a more serious route and a lot of elements were uh, cut from the book. We won't get into too much of that, but this book was an enormous hit. Mario Puzo's The Godfather was released in 1968. It spent 67 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and just a, just a massive success. And so immediately Paramount Studio bought the rights and the next move here is you know why don't we make a movie about this if the book's so popular hopefully the movie will have the same amount of success now puzo was not a household name at the time Uh, he had uh, previous failures with books that he had written and he also had a from what i understand a pretty big gambling addiction and so he was offered 80 grand which I think is a pretty good sum of money for late 60s. But he was offered 80 grand from Paramount to purchase the rights for The Godfather. So you would think after purchasing 
this story that Paramount would jump on this and get The Godfather going. But at the time, movies about the mafia were kind of phasing out. Although the public still had an interest in true crime, and that was the whole idea of Puzo writing this book in the first place, movies about the mob were out. People were just kind of spent on them. And Paramount had a movie in 68 called The Brotherhood with Kirk Douglas that was a complete bomb. They were a little gun shy about doing another movie that involved the mafia. But because The Godfather was a bestseller, they knew that this could be some good property. They saw potential in it. But this was kind of an odd time for film studios. In 69, 70, this was the lowest rated movie attendance of people that went out to go see movies. So taking a gamble on a genre that was fading out was not something that Paramount was eager to do. But Paramount had had some success in 1970 with the movie Love Story, which was also um, another bestseller. And I think that and The Godfather were two of the biggest books to come out of the 70s. And with this being kind of a shaky time for film studios and people even leaving the studio business and then large corporations coming in and acquiring them, there was this push within Paramount to say to the board members, don't give up on us just yet. We still do have stories like love story, things that can be blockbusters and don't shut the doors on Paramount because it was looking bad there for a little while. And the hope was that The Godfather was going to be the movie that would kind of save Paramount in some ways and would be really great for the studio. And like you're saying, this really was a dicey time period for Hollywood and the studio systems. At the end of the 60s, uh, television was like in full effect. Uh, more people were rather turning in to see what was on TV in their own homes, which was more comfortable and easy access. It was much cheaper. And right around this time, Easy Rider had come out, which was kind of a counterculture movie, had young voices. And that movie was a huge success, made for very little money, but it kind of tapped into something that the studios just, it was totally new to them. I think Easy Rider following godfather sort of launched into this idea of these young filmmakers like the new golden age of hollywood begins where the studios take chances on these young directors who have good ideas um fresh takes on things and audiences are captivated by it because it's something that they hadn't seen before francis ford coppola enters the scene and is the you know becomes like one of the first big new voices of 70s hollywood because of the godfather and when coppola comes in I mean, Paramount was looking for someone cheap, reliable, and probably a young director that they could control. A lot of directors had shot this movie down, thought it was trashy, and thought it glamorized the mafia, and no one really wanted to be involved with that. But Coppola's name came up. I mean, honestly, I keep finding that it came up because he's Italian. And that was the first reason that they were like, well, you know what? All of these movies that have been made about the mafia before, they've all been made by Jewish people and they've all been starring Jewish people. No one's been Italian in these movies. Let's get an Italian-American director to make this and give it some authenticity. And in Coppola, the hope was was that this was some guy that was going to play ball with them and it could be a production that would be economical and fit their budget, but hopefully turn a giant profit. And Coppola wasn't uh, just fresh out of film school. He had already established himself. He had done about three or four features, um, none of which were very successful, but, you know, proved that he could tell a story and had, you know, could direct actors and 
um, finish a film on time, but yet he hadn't really worked directly in the studio system. So many stories we have had on this podcast of a non-studio director beginning their relationship with the studio Mm -hmm. and having it become very topsy-turvy. So with Paramount wanting to take a chance on a up-and-coming filmmaker, Coppola wasn't exactly throwing himself at a Hollywood film, which does seem a little wild, you know? You have a studio coming to you and saying, we want you to do this movie that could blow up into something big. I mean, the best-selling book of the decade at the time. But Coppola, along with fellow filmmaker Walter Murch and a director you might have heard of, George Lucas, these guys had formed a mobile film production community called American Zoetrope, and they were more interested in making personal films and somewhat experimental, wanting to stay away from what the Hollywood machine was producing. But it's not like these guys were cranking in a lot of money, and in order to make these personal films, you had to have money coming in somehow. So Coppola was saying, I don't know if I should really do this or not, and it was George Lucas who said, I think you should just do the movie. If we want to keep this dream alive, we've got to have money coming in. You get money coming in, and we can make the movies that we want to make. So after a couple days of thinking about this, Coppola agrees to do the screenplay and direct The Godfather. And he tells Paramount that he sees The Godfather as a chronicled family story about capitalism in America. And Paramount's like, wait, what? The studio wasn't very stoked about the idea, were a little untrusting, but Coppola persuaded them, and I think him being Italian really just kind of sold the whole thing. And just to backpedal for a second, um, bringing up George Lucas, it's easy to forget how in cahoots George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola were in the beginning. I always kind of think of Lucas and Spielberg, like, intertwined. Yeah. But um, when American Zoetrope started, uh, Lucas was able to um, produce his first feature, THX 1138, which was co-written by Walter Murch. Coppola would produce. Lucas would release that film under American Zoetrope. Coppola would go on to produce uh, American Graffiti for George Lucas. George Lucas worked on pretty much all of the early films that Coppola had done. And so they were best buddies, you know, before Steven Spielberg came into the picture and stole Lucas away from <laughs> from Coppola. That bastard. Oh, man. What what was the drama there? There had to be some. Spielberg wanted him to make bigger <laughs> and cooler movies. But to get back to The Godfather, immediately the vision of what Francis Ford Coppola thought The Godfather could be clashed with the studio Paramount initially thought this movie is going to be a hit. It's based off a best-selling novel, but because these fears of it not doing well because it was a gangster movie, they said, you know, let's cut some cost here. Why shoot it in the 40s? Let's make it present day. People might be more into it if it takes place in the 70s. They also didn't want to shoot the movie in New York because it would be so much more expensive to do these on-location shoots. The suggestion was to shoot it in St. Louis where the cost would be cheaper, which would have been pretty cool. I kind of wish they would have shot it in St. Louis. And all these early ideas that the studio had of how to shoot this thing really weren't what Coppola had in mind. He wanted to do something that was a little more personal, a little bit more about uh, this family and not so much a modern gangster picture that was going to be shot on the cheap and sort of just the only focus be let's make a commercial movie, let's make something that's going to make money, cut costs even if it hurts the story or hurts the movie actually being something that uh, is going to be remembered or be good. And it's easy in retrospect to say the studio is an idiot, they should have listened to Coppola, but 
you know, he hadn't proven himself really. He hadn't had a hit. And on top of that, you know, like you said, mafia movies weren't something that people wanted right now. They weren't doing well. And this was a risky venture. And so you can kind of see where the studio is coming from. Who would have known that Coppola would turn out to be the filmmaker he would and this would become the movie it would. It is a good thing that Coppola did fight for this movie and fight for his vision. And another thing with Coppola being so adamant about the story staying in the 40s was it went along with his whole idea of American capitalism and also wanting to really play up the story of an an Italian-American family and, you know, memories that he had of that and just really textured that into the story. And the studio kind of, since they were still going back and forth on what the story was going to focus on. That was why there was this tug of war. And another reason Coppola said that he was so adamant about keeping it in the 40s was because he went through the entire book of The Godfather. And I mean, he he made a whole prompt book that's very, very detailed, took out every page and made notes. The imagery of everything that was happening on every page, what were the most important parts, what had to be included, pitfalls, things that weren't going to work in the story. And he had honed in on this story closer than anyone had ever read it. And he had done this all in the mind of this being in the 40s, thinking about the wardrobe, thinking about the cars, every little detail So Coppola said that when the studio said, let's set this in the 70s, he freaked out and just thought, there's no way, man. I went through all of this with this being in the 40s. It doesn't fit my vision. There is no way that this is going to happen this way. And with his whole tug of war with Paramount through every facet of this film, the fact that he really like started off being like, no, dude, I'm not I'm not doing this. This is the way it's going to be. I mean, that takes some guts, especially when you're an up-and-coming filmmaker. It's pretty impressive and also would never happen today. And Coppola definitely didn't see himself as just a director for hire. He had written all of his previous movies that he directed, and he also uh, actually won an Academy Award for writing Patton when he was shooting The Godfather. And I think that that was probably what gave the studio a little more confidence in his writing. But, you know, he really wanted to put his... A stamp on The Godfather, even though that it was from uh, source material that wasn't his own. And so he started a collaboration with Mario Puzo to figure out the best way to translate this book into something that would work as a movie. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was a collaboration between Puzo and Coppola. Coppola definitely wrote the screenplay, but he would show it to Puzo, who then would send him notes on it. And they did work together on the story, but a lot of the book was cut out. There were just some aspects that didn't speak to Coppola. Like we mentioned before, some of the trashier stuff he wanted to leave out. To him, The Godfather was a story of succession, not necessarily about crime, but it was about the story of a king and his three sons, really, the kind of this classic tale. But that's not to say that this became Coppola's vision alone. This is certainly Mario Puzo's story. Coppola has always, throughout his career, given credit to the source material. That's why it says Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Coppola had a lot of personal influence over the story and really peppered that into the life of the the Corleone family that we follow. Puzo added in a lot of details that he had learned um, originally when he wrote this book. I don't think either Puzo or Coppola came from uh, families of organized crime. Like Puzo based a lot of things in The Godfather off stories he heard while he was gambling in Las Vegas. And 
Who knows how many of those stories were completely true or if they were embellished, but he learned those secondhand from people, but he did learn a lot. So he added in those details that maybe Coppola wasn't privy to, but Coppola was certainly familiar with the Italian way of life and how families of that background interacted with each other. But in the end of the writing process, Coppola had final say over what was going to be in the script. But once Coppola had a finished script that Paramount was comfortable with, uh, word soon hit the street that The Godfather was going to be happening. There was going to be a movie, that, a big movie that was going to be adapted and shot in New York. And that made uh, many people unhappy, mainly Italian-Americans who were worried about there being misrepresentation. But more importantly, it angered the mob. And <laughs> that became a real problem for Paramount, for Coppola, and for everybody involved with the production. Um, we're going to take a break. We'll go to another clip. And we'll come back. We'll talk about the mob intersecting the Godfather. Louis restaurant in the Bronx. Well, is it reliable? That's my man in McCluskey's precinct. Police captain's got to be on call 24 hours a day. He signed out at that number between 8 and 10. Anybody know this joint? Yeah, sure I do. It's perfect for us. A small family place, good food. Everyone minds his business. It's perfect. Pete, they got an old-fashioned toilet. You know, the box and then the the, uh, the chain thing. We might be able to take the gun behind it. All right. Mike, you go to a restaurant, you eat, you talk for a while, you relax. You make them relax. Then you get up and you go take a leak. Or better still, you ask for permission to go. And when you come back, you come out blasting. And don't take any chances. Two shots in the head apiece. Now listen, I want somebody good, and I mean very good, to plant that gun. I don't want my brother coming out of that toilet with just his dick in his hands, all right? The gun will be there. All right, listen, you drive him and you pick him up after the job. Come on, let's move. Did he uh, tell you to drop the gun right away? Yeah, a million times. You don't forget. Two shots of peace in the head as soon as you come out the door. Right? How long do you think it'll be before I can come back? At least a year, man. Listen, um, a square wood mom, you know, you're not seeing her before you leave. And uh, I'll get a message to that girlfriend when I think the time is right. So it seems every time we talk about a movie where there's an up-and-coming director that's dealing with the studio for the first time, uh, what always seems to be a good buffer is a really great producer that uh, helps support the filmmaker and helps them take some of the brunt from the heat that they're getting from the studio. And that producer was Al Ruddy. Al Ruddy really believed in Coppola and also... Um, believed in the vision of the film, but also uh, had a lot of good sense about how to navigate the studio system and also how to deal with some of the real-life friction that they were getting from the unhappy mafia that was starting to get pretty pissed off about the fact that um, they were going to make a movie about the mafia in New York. And remember, this was before any production had started. They hadn't started filming, anything like that. It was just the idea that a movie involving Italian-Americans and the mafia was going to be filmed in New York, and people had a problem with that. And Al Ruddy was the first person to be targeted, along with Paramount. Both he and the studio started receiving threats. Paramount even received bomb threats. Al Ruddy, I think his uh, assistant, borrowed his car one night 
and overnight the windows had been shot out and it's not a coincidence when your family is being threatened you're being threatened intimidated you know who did that one so like justin already said it was over the idea of misrepresentation of italian americans everyone being in the mafia and just general negative stereotypes. So the Italian-American Civil Rights League takes action to try to combat this. And a well-known mob boss named Joe Colombo kind of starts to spearhead this. And if you're up on your mob history, uh, this is around the time that the mafia is really in cahoots with the unions. And without the unions, it would just be difficult for the studio system to shoot a movie in New York. You know, they wouldn't be able to get the electricians. They wouldn't be able to get food service the mob could use their influence to persuade the unions not to help out, not to give the licensings that the studio needed to start filming. So this was a really huge issue, not just the fact that the mob is mad and they're using intimidation tactics. They actually had the power to stop things dead in their tracks and not allow the production companies to come in and actually start filming. So this was a really, really stressful time for Al Ruddy, who had to figure out a way to somehow find some common ground, talk to somebody, have a meeting. Before the production on Godfather even got started, it already starts feeling like a a scene out of the movie where a meeting needs to take place to uh, make sure everybody's on the same page so that nobody gets hurt and things can proceed without violence or total uh, shutdown. Yeah, when it becomes clear that all of your shooting locations, none of the businesses or anyone is going to let you shoot there because they're controlled by the mafia, that's going to be a problem. So they knew that something needed to be done. And Al Ruddy, I mean, I give this guy credit. Um, He comes face to face with Joe Colombo and says, we need to have a sit down. And they strike a deal. Um, Ruddy thinks that this is just going to be like a small thing, but he's confronted with a whole room of people and is forced to explain how the Godfather is not going to be detrimental to Italians. He starts trying to explain himself. No one's really hearing him and or doesn't want to hear him. So Colombo demands a private meeting with Ruddy and says he wants to read the script. All right, cool. You're mob boss. Not going to say no to you. Sure, let's have a sit down. And it quickly becomes apparent that Colombo doesn't want to read the script, really. He just wants a few things understood. And none of his cohorts that are with him really care to read the script either. He turns to them and says, all right, you think we can trust this guy? Meaning already. And with that, a deal was born. And it's a pretty simple one, if you ask me. Um, The main one being that the word mafia can't be used in anywhere in The Godfather, can't utter that word. And ironically, in the original script, it was only said something like one or two times, maybe. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. But Ruddy didn't want him to necessarily know that it wasn't that big of a deal to not say that. And the other stipulation would be that the production pays to use the businesses and locations that fall into kind of mob jurisdiction. I mean, if you're going to be allowed to film in these places, I can't hate on that. I mean, you know, it is what it is. And from what I understand, it seemed to be that the mob was getting kickbacks from all the businesses that were going to allow filming. The mob was getting percentage of all this, if not all the money. I think like, yeah, and a lot. <laughs> once word hit the street that... Hollywood was doing a handshake deal with the mob and this was happening. The The mob had control over Hollywood and a deal was struck. So um, dramatic. Yeah. That did not sit well with a lot of people, namely the head of the studio at Paramount, who we said earlier had become like not just a studio. It was 
bought by a corporation, Gulf Western, which was which was a subsidy. And their board members were starting to get mad because they were losing shareholders. People didn't want to back a studio that was in bed with the mob. And so this was just became a huge disaster for them. And Al Ruddy went from having a target on his back from the mafia to a target on his back from the head of the studio and was immediately fired for doing this sit down with the mob. But without Al Ruddy... All of these deals, all of the filming locations, everything that it had been working for the production once he made this deal, none of this was going to happen. So Coppola realizes this and pleads with the studio to just take him back that there's no way that this movie is going to be made. They've got everything set up for the production. There's no way they're going to be able to make this movie in New York if they don't have Al Ruddy. So after like a year of, of all this torment and just blowback from dealing with the mob, Paramount does decide to quietly hire back Al Ruddy to the production. And I mean, that's pretty much what saved this movie and, and what made it be able to actually go into production. Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely crazy how much stuff happened before they could actually shoot one frame of film on this movie. Coppola has notoriously been known as a under-the-gun filmmaker. You know, it's been said that some of his best films that have come out are the ones where he was, like, under the most distress and the movies which were easy for him to make uh, weren't as good. There's a case for that to be made. (laughs) And certainly with The Godfather, he felt like he could be fired at any minute. They already fired Al Ruddy and rehired him back, but Coppola felt like he just didn't have confidence in the studio once they started shooting. Coppola had hired Gordon Willis, who now has considered one of the most uh, acclaimed cinematographers who had this particular style. He liked to use a lot of black space. His films were very darkly lit. And when they got the first week of dailies back from The Godfather, the studio was just totally unhappy. They were like, this is too dark. The movie looks dark. The, The tone of it is off. And they weren't confident with the performances by the actors. Again, it's weird how stuff happened in this movie that was similar to the actual Godfather movie where Coppola felt that there were people on the crew that were against him that were siding with the studio in hopes to um, move up within the system, maybe take over the Godfather and become the director if he was to get fired. You know, you hear so many crew stories about movies and The worst thing that can happen is to have mutiny on your crew during production or just have your crew not have faith in you as a director. Um, You're the person who's in charge. You're the person who's leading them through filming this entire thing. And so once, you know, there's a crack in that support system, you know, things start to fail. And Coppola felt that there were three or four people that are already against him during production. And he was certain that he was going to get fired Like pretty much every week he thought he was going to get fired. So Coppola decides to make a Michael Corleone type decision. And before he gets fired from the studio, he hits back and fires four people on his crew, including the first assistant director that he didn't trust. Which ended up buying him a little bit more time. And the mass firing coincided with him winning an Oscar for Patton. So it kind of helped a little bit with the studio, but he was still feeling really uneasy. I mean... Hearing a big-time director talk about feeling like an outsider and being in the bathroom and hearing the crew talk smack on him, just feeling completely like he wasn't respected for any of his ideas. But still, he persisted and made it through, even when he found out that the studio was planning on sending in another director who was known for great action sequences 
to make more action, more violence happen in the movie, he decided to get ahead of that one and create a scene that was exactly that and appease the studio. It's interesting that a Hollywood studio at this time wanted more violence in the movie. Like generally, that's something that they're trying to cut down on. They really want to amp it up. And I don't really consider The Godfather to be a very violent movie, but, you know, watching it, I guess there are like, you know, multiple scenes of violence that take place. They're just trying to sell that mob aspect of the movie and like have a little bit of something in it, but it just wasn't there. And it wasn't just a lack of violence that the studio was pressuring Coppola on. He was falling behind schedule. The wedding sequence in The Godfather is the first half hour of the movie, and it really does set up all the characters. So it's like very important, and Coppola knew that. Paramount said, this is taking too long, so whatever you can get done in the next two days, that's what you're going to shoot. And then whatever cuts together, that's what you're going to use. So this really stressed Coppola out. The best solution he had was was to talk to cinematographer Gordon Willis and say, we're going to have to start running two cameras and you'll just, you know, do, get a long lens and shoot, you know, pick up shots while we're shooting the important scenes. Well, this irritated Gordon Willis because, you know, he was having to make compromises immediately. Then Coppola hit him with, we're also going to have to shoot during the night as well. So the entire sequence where Diane Keaton and Al Pacino are having the conversation about Luca Brasi, uh, that all takes place at night. They just blasted a bunch of light on them and sort of made it look like they're like underneath like a porch setting. It actually matches really well in the movie. I didn't know that. But they're basically shooting like day and night for like two or three days trying to knock out all the wedding stuff. The Godfather's long movie, the wedding sequence is 30 minutes. Then we have another like 15 minutes where Tom Hagen goes to Los Angeles. We don't actually have like a first meeting of stuff that's going on within the other families for like 45 minutes into the movie. But I feel like I know the characters by then because of this wedding sequence. And I generally don't like movies where it's leading up to a wedding and all the crap that people are stressed out about. And then it ends with a wedding. But I love movies that open with a wedding. And it is a really good device because you have something that a situation that everybody can relate to, an audience can relate to, where you show each character in their own you know, world and how they're dealing with uh, the family members. And so Coppola was, you know, under the gun, but he was able to knock everything out, get all the wedding sequence stuff that they needed. And Coppola had the same issues when he went to cast the film. The Godfather is full of great actors, iconic actors that we've come to know and love, but they were not the choices that the studio had to begin with. They wanted to go in a completely different direction. We're going to go to a clip. We're going to come back. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the release reception of the movie and a little bit about those sequels. I knew that Santana was going to have to go through all this. And Fredo, oh. Fredo was, oh. And I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time that... that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone, something. I'm not a personal hunter. 
This wasn't enough time, Michael. Wasn't enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Now listen, whoever comes to you with this Barzini meeting, he's the traitor. Don't forget that. So when I think of The Godfather, immediately the image that I always have is of Marlon Brando on the box. Um, sometimes there's the image of him holding the cat. I wish uh, the cat was in it more. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but I think it's a great performance. Uh, it's certainly an unusual performance, memorable, and I think it totally works. Marlon Brando was like absolutely the last person that the studio wanted not only didn't want marlon brando but like it was just like he's not going to be in any paramount pictures movie in the 50s with on the waterfront like he became sort of the face of the new era of like method acting and and kind of going big with parts and like going off script and and really like giving like a overly dramatic performance at times and using unusual techniques but he also became extremely difficult to work with by the mid to late 60s he was still acting but he was not in any movies that had been successful in most directors and studios just he was just a headache to work with wouldn't listen kind of did his own thing was hard to take direction and so when Coppola suggested Marlon Brando the studio was just like absolutely not I don't want to hear about it anymore if you bring up Marlon Brando again, I'm going to fire you. And so it took uh, a lot more than a meeting with the studio to get them to come around to the idea of of Marlon Brando for the role of Vito Corleone. Coppola mentioned to Puzo that he thought of Marlon Brando, and Puzo said, that's funny, that's the first person I thought of for this part. And it seemed like there was going to be nothing that would convince the studio, but apparently they entertained the idea um, based on three things, if if Marlon Brando would agree to these three things. One, um, he not be paid for the role, which is insane. Two, he does a screen test. And I would imagine at this point, Marlon Brando doing a screen test, he would give the middle finger to that. And three, that he put up a bond that's basically saying if he messes up anything in the production, he is financially responsible for whatever damages that that does to the production. Pretty much the studio was uh, making Marlon Brando an offer that he would absolutely refuse. (laughs) Like anybody, (laughs) any actor would just say, okay, so basically you're just telling me to screw off. Like this is like a no-win situation. Yeah. But with Brando being pretty much box office poison, Coppola does go to him and does a sneaky little screen test with him without him really realizing that's what Coppola is doing. He says, I'm going to come over and we're going to do a makeup test on you and let's just see how this rolls. And Coppola also films this so he can take it back to Paramount to show them the screen test that he's agreeing to one of these stipulations. And Brando doesn't necessarily fit the look of what an older aging mob boss looks like. He's only in his 40s at this point and isn't Don Vito that we see in the movie. But he, on the spot just transforms himself right in front of Coppola. Yeah, Brando had the idea to make himself a little bit older and took like black shoe polish, put it in his hair, 
took some tissue paper and stuffed it in his cheeks to give him sort of the jutting jawline. And he was modeling his uh, portrayal and voice off of real-life gangster Frank Costello and doing that sort of sounds like he smoked like three packs of cigarettes a day his whole life, this sort of like strained, throaty vocal style. And... Or like he got shot in the throat at yeah, some point. It, it's a bizarre choice, you know, but it is a choice and it's doing something different. Uh, the only thing I can think of that's like is close to this sort of bold style would be like Billy Bob Thornton's voice and like Sling Blade. Yeah. Just something that's just like so beyond anything that you would think of like, oh, okay, this is the voice you're choosing. You know, you're sort of like mumbly and unusual voice, but it works and it's become this memorable thing. It's Brando being Brando saying, hey, I'm going to try something. I'm going to experiment with this. I'm not just going to go what's on the page. I'm going to go beyond that and really try to like make a character. It was pretty convincing in the studio. Even though they weren't happy about him kind of mumbling lines, they were impressed by him sort of looking older and kind of taking on a, an interesting take on Vito Corleone. Like a bulldog mouth. It's really amazing that he came up with that on the spot. Like maybe he was thinking about this. He probably was in advance, but just to kind of transform in front of someone was pretty cool. And though Marlon Brando uh, agreed to the studio's terms, it was not without some of his uh, idiosyncrasies that traveled to the set with him. Um, I think the biggest one that's been documented is him having cue cards held up so that he could read the lines because he felt that if he memorized the lines, it like inhibited him from like really being able to be free. Um, I don't necessarily know how that uh, makes sense. If you Google image Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall uh, cue card, there's a really bizarre picture on set of uh, Robert Duvall's Tom Hagen. He has like Marlon Brando's lines like on a piece of paper and they're like taped to his chest so that Marlon Brando can read his lines off of Robert Duvall's chest. That's absolutely ridiculous. It really is. Yeah. But still, he gives a pretty effective performance. And uh, we mentioned the cat earlier. Uh, that was another thing that was just, there happened to be a cat on set or in this house. And so uh, it seemed to like Marlon Brando and Marlon seemed to like the cat. So the cat jumped up on his lap and they just ended up, putting that in the movie if you ever do a watch where you just focus on the cat you can see the cat starts getting very playful and uh marlon brando's like sort of trying to ignore that fact you know he's playing with it but they still kept it in there even though i think that could have potentially been distracting i think it was a big risk for coppola to use an actor that wasn't easy to work with especially this being coppola's first studio picture but it really paid off marlon brando gives a not just a a unique performance and he does the voice and these sort of mannerisms but when it comes down to like the dramatic scene of Marlon Brando sort of revealing to Michael toward the end of the movie that he didn't want this life for Michael, you know, he always wanted to keep him shielded from the dark side of the family business. And, you know, he felt a lot of regret and guilt that Michael got pulled into this. That's a really effective scene. It's where you really see Marlon Brando being able to do these like dramatic turns and it's insane to me that he's like 47 48 in this movie sort of the wisdom that he emotes 
I totally buy the fact that he's like 20 years older. If you Google, you can see this, the makeup test where he's like, before they put the makeup on him and before he gets in the character, he really does look like 20, 25 years younger. For a movie that centers around Don Corleone, the, this big head honcho mob boss, what is always amazing to me is how warm and how much we care about him. And I know that that was one of Coppola's things he didn't like after the movie came out is that it made people kind of sympathize with the people involved. Because Don Corleone, he's done some bad things in his life. But I am sad when he dies. There are a lot of factors in this and how he relates to his kids and just how loyalty and family are number one above everything else. I don't know. There's something that's really admirable about his communication and the way that Brando delivers this performance. I, yeah, like you, Justin, I am sucked into believing everything about this guy and all of his kids who complete this family picture. And speaking of those kids... Big roles to fill here, the biggest role being that of Michael, you know, a, a character who starts out as uh, very quiet, very considerate, and someone who does not want to be a part of the crime family that uh, his brother and father have made a life in, and we slowly see him getting sucked into this world and eventually, like, taking the reins in one of the main reasons why I think this movie is so captivating because we do see someone totally go from being a straight-laced war hero to becoming like a cold-blooded killer. Al Pacino also was like the last person that the studio wanted. <laughs> Their biggest complaint about Al Pacino, uh, the guy's too short and such a bizarre thing. It's like Al Pacino's become one of, you know, the most renowned actors on the planet. And in the book, Michael Corleone was described more of like blonde hair, kind of looked more like Tom Hagen's character, um, not so much like Italian-American. Coppola, again, wanted to get Italian-American actors. Pacino had done a few movies. He hadn't done any roles that had made him aware to a studio yet. And so they were completely against... Um, Pacino being in the role, but Coppola, again, worked on the studio, worked on some screen tests, and he auditioned other actors, but again, kept coming back to Pacino saying, you know, we need to use him as Michael. I think with the audition tapes that were sent to Paramount, Coppola kept sneaking in Al Pacino, and Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife, cut these tapes together, and Coppola was strategically putting Pacino in there with other actors that were auditioning, like Martin Sheen, and even James Caan, who would play Sonny, he was auditioning for Michael as well. And Coppola asked Marsha Lucas, what do you think of Pacino? This is who I want to use. And she said, you have to use him. He just undresses you with his eyes. He's perfect. But by keeping on putting Pacino in these audition tapes, this was just a maybe just slowly whittling down the studio to see that he could really pull off this role. But it wasn't until that they were actually filming did the studio finally believe that Pacino could pull off this role. It's kind of wild. It's like he's a fascinating character, but probably the most unlikable character in a lot of ways because through all the movies, he kind of screws people over and go. And if anyone ever like goes against him, he just you know gets rid of them and usually makes a lot of decisions that nobody else is in agreement with. I feel like that's a recurring theme through all the movies. But he does do such a great transformation. Though there's other movies that I, I like Al Pacino more in than The Godfather, this is 
always probably going to be the first movie that comes to mind when I think of Pacino. Just the work that he does. I always love to bring up actors' eyes. The work that he does with his eyes in that Salazzo scene, he does more of that in Godfather 2. It's just you really feel like you know what he's feeling and it is so intense that you're like, I don't know what he's going to do next because I can't read him, but his eyes are like, something's going to happen right now. If you're used to watching older Pacino movies, 1990 and on, um, it's wild hearing 70s Pacino because he's he's much more soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't doing so much of the like yelling at the end of his sentences, which kind of became his trademark. Um, but in The Godfather, or in Godfather 1, he is you know, very, very quiet and very like humble and doesn't really raise his voice. And, but uh, like you said, um, really does use his eyes. And there's like a lot of expression there of what he's thinking and how uh, pissed off he is. Well, moving on to the other sons, we've got uh, James Kahn, who is probably, I think, most people's favorite character in The Godfather. I, I love his portrayal of Sonny in this movie, it gives a little bit of levity to the movie because he is pretty funny. He's jovial. Um, you know, he flies off the handle and he is, he's the hothead. Yeah. He's the hothead, you know, and and it's a good, I, I love that there's this difference between the three brothers and, and, you know, I'm counting four brothers. I'm counting Tom Hagen, even though he was sort of like a, not, not full blooded, but James Caan, I don't think there's a modern day actor that that we have that's like a James Caan, sort of this tough guy actor who can also pull off like really lengthy scenes of dialogue where he's a tough guy, but yet he's going to tell you like what he's feeling, you know, and like what he's going through in his life. Um, not not so much in other roles he did in The Godfather. He kind of sticks with like the hot headed brother, um, you know, who's kind of always going to have a knee-jerk reaction he's not going to think things through but a great performance and also like balances out this family dynamic so well um and i think his death scene is probably you know out of all the the memorable the ones where it happens and i know that Sonny gets killed every time i see the godfather but when that moment comes up where he they start shooting him uh, in the toll booth, it always that's still probably the most shocking scene to me every time I rewatch this movie. With something like 140 dummy heads that were put on him, and he had to not only react like he was being shot that many times, but those things were actually like hurting him. You know, you have that many going off on you, that's going to hurt a lot. Also, with uh, James Conn's performance, uh, one thing I was talking to you about off the mic was the uh, I always kind of thought that it was like an overacting thing where he like bites down on his hand yeah <laughs> it's, it's always just kind of like takes me out a little bit when he when he finds out that uh his sister's uh husband's been beating her and um i mentioned that to you and you're like yeah i i, I think i uh did that like just like a week ago you talk with your hands sometimes so i think it just like I, I mean italians do you you use your hands and sometimes whether it's reflecting being mad or some other intense emotion sometimes you're just like Oh, you put that fist in your mouth. I mean, not your entire fist. You so bite you, your fist. So you feel that <laughs> the, the portrayal was like closer to is a pretty honest portrayal of an Italian-American that's getting kind of upset? I think it can be. Yeah, yeah I don't think every Italian-American is going to bite their fist. Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten, for sure. I have been accused. I'm not full Italian, but I have definitely been accused of 
of being very Italian and speaking with my hands and grand yeah. gestures and, whoa, you're a little too Italian right now. You just have all these like <laughs> teeth indentions across your knuckles and not from punching people from like Mm-mm. getting pissed off and no, biting, my own down teeth. On, biting down on your own hands. My own teeth. Yeah. The unfortunate brother in this, in this whole what, situation, Fredo, Fredo <laughs> gosh, Fredo never gets any respect and then is like, <laughs> gets a hit put on him by his own brother. And there's, if you haven't seen it, there's a great documentary on John Cazale kind of talking about how he was in, he was only in like five or six movies in almost every, oh, it's like all those movies were nominated for Best Picture. Just he was on fire in his career. It's like one amazing performance in movie after another. And then uh, unfortunately passed away cancer. I don't think like most actors want to play like, this kind of character, you the know, like, like the goon, the the pathetic yeah. part. And he does it in a way that's um, I think could have been done in a totally on the nose sort of way. You feel bad for Fredo. Like, you know, he's like fumbling the gun and like oh. gets out of the car and he just starts like sobbing when his dad gets shot. But then later in Vegas, you know, you're just like, man, Fredo's kind of like a scumbag. You know what I mean? It's just like, he yeah. really falls into that. You go from like, like feeling sorry for him to like just despising him. But John Cazale, like just, he, he plays it so great. It's like, he's so subtle and it's like, he's in the background, but then just one scene after another in these movies where you see him uh, just like having no control over a situation, always saying the wrong thing, always doing the wrong thing, making the wrong decision. And like his family, like having to sort of like deal with him in some way, just like, just go take care of this or else I'm going to take care of it. Yeah. He's not included in the, in the backdoor meetings. They don't include Fredo. And even Michael, who's not supposed to be part of the family business, this side of it, he's there, but Fredo's not. And all of these brothers represent different facets of Don Corleone's, their father. And that's just a really smart aspect of this story to just see how each one of them has these qualities, but their qualities that make them stand apart from each other in some way are detrimental to them, especially, I think, in Sonny's case. Fredo, you feel bad for him, but he's like, he's never going to be the Don. No. Sonny, he's too much of a hothead. He's not going to be the Don. It's left to Michael. And Michael, he's a little bit of a sociopath. And we have to round out the main guys with the unofficial fourth brother, Tom Hagen, who's the Corleone family's attorney, played by Robert Duvall. And I think out of all of the son-type characters in this movie, he's the one I like the most. To me, if he if someone's going to follow Don Corleone and, and take over for him, I you know, I would pick Tom Hagen. Tom Hagen is my favorite character in the Godfather series. And Robert Duvall is one of my favorite actors. He's the full balance. Like, he is the moderator. He's the voice of reason, the natural successor of Marlon Brando's character. But he can't be because, you know, he's not family. Totally. He's not blood family. He also doesn't have the guts to pull the trigger when necessary yeah it's true that's true but yeah, i don't really think he's soft you know he's intelligent mm-hmm. but yeah he's not the muscle of the family is as, as uh, Salazzo says he's, he's always the person that i find myself listening to the most and he's got some great scenes especially between him and james Kahn, where he his bounds are in the family like what importance he has and like what decisions he gets to make but i do think that he's the most in some ways, the most fleshed out character early on because he's the one who's with Marlon Brando in the beginning. He's the one that's like helping with the meetings. He's the one that 
goes to Los Angeles and we see how involved he is with the family. You know, he even says, I only work with one client. And it's a damn shame that he wasn't in part three um, over a dispute over money. And he is a big reason why it's such a unique dynamic by having these four brothers, their bond, they respect each other, but there's also sibling rivalry that we see. And anytime that happens on screen, um, that's when I'm the most interested in what's going down. You're right. The scenes between Khan and Duvall are really captivating at times. And it's kind of no surprise because it's one of the reasons that Coppola wanted to reteam them. They had been in The Rain People before, and he had really thought that the magic between those two uh, really worked and wanted to bring it to this. And you know, another pairing, too, that uh, Coppola was aware of was Pacino and Diane Keaton, who plays Michael's girlfriend, Kay, who had known each other years before and had a certain friendship, simpatico, understanding with each other. And he thought that bringing them together would really play well on screen since they're supposed to be a couple. And after Coppola had seen Keaton in Lovers and Other Strangers, he was just really bowled over with uh, how unique and uh, eccentric she was on screen and just thought that she could bring a certain quality to the character of Kay that no one else could. And I, I man, I couldn't agree more because I, I have some issues with the character of Kay, but it's not the fault of that character or of Diane Keaton. I think it's just a little misstep and not really helping that character along or giving her much to go with. But what the character of Kay has, Diane Keaton does so much with, and that couldn't have been done just by anybody. I think Diane Keaton is rewarded with a better role in Godfather 3 and a little bit in Godfather 2. And this one, she a lot of times feels a little bit like set dressing, like they only use her to advance the story in Michael, you know, explaining what he wants. Uh, I think the roughest thing with the K character is like Michael not seeing her, like he just leaves her for four years and then he shows up, even... shows up at her work and is like, hey, I want to have kids. She's like, you've been gone for a year and doesn't ask what you've been doing. Yeah. One of the few things in The Godfather that's like a little shaky storyline wise, it's like you just kind of feel bad for Kay. But then we don't really see Kay and Michael's relationship develop too much. You know, she's always kind of on the outside. And I know that that's the point of the movie and that becomes a bit of contention later on in the other movies. I'm glad that it's Diane Keaton and not somebody who, you know, sucks. (laughs) That's very true. And Diane Keaton ended up telling Francis Ford Coppola's wife that she modeled Kay after her and that she was kind of waspy and, you know, she was an Italian and on the outside and Mrs. Coppola was kind of taken aback at first. But, you know, she's right, you know, a little bit, little qualities of Kay, which is probably a pretty smart move for Diane Keaton to do. So throughout the Godfather series, um, the movie storyline sort of encapsulates what Coppola's going through trying to make these movies. And very much that idea of family is Coppola has said, you know, I, I think of, you know, my own family and putting them in the movie. He comes from a very uh, renowned Hollywood family now, like so many members of his family are in the entertainment industry. And even early on, you know, he was able to put family members in the movie. He has background characters or family members, uh, his own daughter who appeared in part three, 
she's a baby in this movie. She appears in the scene. Um, but most notably in The First Godfather, Coppola uses his sister, Talia Shire. Much like Diane Keaton, she's given a very minimal role, I think, in The First Godfather. Um, we see like a redemption of that given a bigger part. The women are sort of redeemed in the third Godfather film with bigger and better uh, character arcs. I wouldn't blame the characters themselves. It's a flaw in the writing. I mean, not to not that I'm like a better writer than Coppola, but the two female characters that are in this are so one-dimensional that it's like, what are you doing with them? But I will say that casting Talia Shire for this Coppola was probably very smart in this, even though it came at a moment when he thought he was going to get fired. And he thought, you know, what if I get fired? You know, what? I'm just going to cast my sister in this role. We need somebody for this. I get fired. She's still got this. But casting her um, in this role where she has a uh, extremely dramatic, violent, loud scene where she's being beaten up by her husband. I have to think that even though it was hard for Coppola to you know, watch his sister, even though she wasn't really being beaten up. It's a pretty rough scene to watch. I bet that directing his own sister in that probably worked a little bit better and had a little bit more emotion and heart in it than using someone else. Or at least, I I don't know, I would think that it would anyway. And call it nepotism if you want, or just that Coppola is Italian and loves to involve his family. But it didn't stop there. He used his father for um, some of the music in the film. Carmine Coppola was a concert flutist who had always wanted to start composing. That was the career that he um, always wanted to pursue, but never had gotten the opportunity. So his son gave him his first big break. And it was said throughout the production that they didn't interact as father and son. It was very professional. So all of the music, aside from the Godfather love theme is Carmine Coppola, is Francis's dad. And the Godfather love theme, which has a few, maybe like three, I think, variations of it throughout the film, were done by Nino Rota. A pretty iconic theme. It is, you know, dark, but also elegant, very classic, clean elements of tragedy to it, but still just kind of a heavy theme behind it. Even if you've never seen The Godfather and you hear that, you're immediately affected. It's the music that I think of first when I think of The Godfather. I don't think of the main theme. I think of the love theme Mm -hmm. music. And you could have guessed it. Paramount wasn't completely sold on using The Godfather theme in this. So Paramount agreed with Coppola to put the music on a cut of the film and let the audience decide, see what their reaction was going to be. Well, the audience loved it. And Bob Evans of Paramount, who had been a big proponent of Love Story, had a few minor changes to it But otherwise, it is what we hear in the final cut of The Godfather. Now, that first cut of The Godfather was around two hours and 50 minutes. And the studio said, yeah, you're going to need to get that down to two hours and five minutes. And if you can't, you're going to have to bring it back to L.A. and edit it here. Coppola was in San Francisco with two other editors. I think there were a total of six editors working on this, but only two others were credited, trying to get this film down to the specified time. They got it down to two hours and 20 minutes and brought it to Paramount. Bob Evans, again, with the problems, but this was a good problem, actually. He said, what happened? You cut out all of the heart of the movie. All there is is plot now. So in the end, the film was brought to L.A., and all of the edited out footage was added back in. 
So in the end, I mean, you can say Bob Evans is responsible for the Godfather that we see today, but really, I mean, it was kind of the original cut of the film. I am curious when they made those big cuts, when they brought it down to 220, if the Sicily stuff was cut. I think of all the stuff that could be shaved off the Godfather, the Sicily stuff seems to kind of go kind of long and is not super detrimental to the plot. I mean... No, Michael could hide out after the Salazzo murder. He could hide out somewhere else. He doesn't have to go to Sicily and marry someone for a year. Yeah. Jeez, I can't... He really leaves the country, marries some 16-year-old girl, which we don't even talk about, really, and then comes back and Kay just accepts that. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry. That's the only (laughs) section of the film that I guess it... It gives the, that section of the movie gives authenticity, but to me, that's the section of Godfather that I think really, like, for me personally, slows down. The Sicilian aspect of the Godfather is very important and a clear distinction throughout the film. So I understand why they wanted to, why Coppola wanted to include that in this film. It does make it more authentic and legitimizes it in a lot of ways. But um, I do agree with you. It, it is the part that can be cut out. And it does come around um, later on in the sequels, you know. They go to Sicily in two and three. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it makes it more relevant, I think, you know, the relationship that he had. But it, it in, but in some ways, too, it's kind of shoehorned in the, into yeah. uh, Godfather <laughs> 3. Well, as much heartache that Coppola went through to get this movie made, as many problems that the studio had with everything that Coppola wanted to do, just totally being against them every step of the way. They had to be happy with the outcome. When The Godfather was released, um, I think uh, I read that it was not since Gone with the Wind had a movie become such a big box office success. At the time, it was the highest grossing film of all time until uh, a few years later when Jaws hit. And and it was also, too, uh, one of the few films that um, was such a huge hit with audiences, but then also... Uh, equally uh, was a hit with critics, which a lot of times those are, you know, at opposite ends of the spectrum. The success of Godfather totally paved the way for Godfather 2, which I'll be honest, until we started uh, researching this, I never really knew that Godfather 2 and 3 were written post-Godfather. I thought that there were other books. I didn't realize that, you know, they were they were just kind of filling in yeah. new history yeah. about the Corleones. For Godfather 2, they did borrow portions of the book that they had cut out of Godfather 1. We could dedicate an entire episode to both of these sequels, so we're not going to spend too much time on them here. Depending on what year you talk to me about these movies, <laughs> I'll change my mind whether I think Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2. You can't have Godfather 2 without Godfather 1, so... I mean, in a lot of ways, I think the original is going to be the winner. But Godfather 2 is, as far as sequels go, it's been said a million times, and I'll say it a million and one, probably one of the best sequels ever made, probably one of the best sequels that will ever be made. The sequel carries so much weight. It was also a success, not as big as the Godfather uh, Part 1, but big enough success that they decided they were going to make a Part 3. But really a huge gap here. It was kind of strange that... So much time had elapsed between Godfather 2 and 3. But from what I can gather, uh, Coppola did the Godfathers. He felt he had told the story between 1 and 2, had made a bunch of money, was ready to do the, you know, move on to other movies that he was passionate about, you know, was ready to sort of 
leave the Corleones behind. I think the only reason he did Godfather 3 for a lot of the same reasons he did Godfather 1. He needed the money at the time, and they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Nice one. Not that you asked me, Justin, but um, my favorite Godfather movie. Sorry, Lindsay. (laughs) What's your favorite Godfather movie? You come here, you don't even act like my friend. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to treat you like... uh, like K. Like K or Connie. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think my opinion would change from time to time on one or two. I think that the second half of Godfather 2 is stronger than the first half, although I do love Robert De Niro in part two. I don't know. I would have to say, though, probably Godfather 1, although I think the best scene in all of the Godfather movies is when K tells michael that she had an abortion and it's like the worst it's the only thing the only time you actually ever see michael hurt ever it's the one thing is that you aborted his son that would take over after him i mean she did have she had another kid yeah you know it's fine but still the rage in his eyes the fact that she is not scared of this mafia boss and it's an incredible scene between those two so i don't know um, maybe Godfather 2 is my favorite, just based on that being my favorite scene. If you ask me right now, I'd say Godfather 2 is my favorite. Yeah. And with Godfather 3, like we said, it uh, comes out 16 years after Godfather 2. There was a lot of hype surrounding Godfather 3. I'm not going to sit here and bag on Godfather 3 a bunch here. No. But I'll just say I'm that, gonna... you know, I think it's, it's a universal agreement here that Godfather 3 is the lesser of the film's Last year, Coppola put out a re-edit. Maybe he was talking to his old buddy George Lucas and was like, I'm going to, you know, instead of making <laughs> new stuff, I'm going to go back and just fiddle with uh, Tell me about old, how to do my, that. With my old movies. And he uh, did a re-edit of Godfather 3. And so I sat down and watched this whole damn thing. And I'll <laughs> say, I think it's an improvement over Godfather 3. It's essentially the same movie. I mean, they kind of like move some things around and they trim some things. But I do think that it makes the movie a lot clearer and we get the intentions of like what the plot is about in the opening of the movie versus 40 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to get down with the Godfather movies, even though I convince myself, I'm like, I'm just going to watch one and two. When I get to the end of Godfather two, it's just this want to complete this thing. And so I always end up watching Godfather three. I'll just say, that every time I approach Godfather three, I you know usually some time has elapsed. You know I'm I'm not watching Godfather's once a year here. This is uh, you know happens like maybe once every like four or five years. And I always approach Godfather three thinking, you know maybe this time around this is like not as bad as I remember it, but it but it always is. I'm not gonna bag on Godfather three. What is surprising to me though is that both one and two. They revolve around the family. There's not really that much love interest to speak of. But in Godfather 3, it certainly involves family and the romance love aspect. I just don't know why you're going to have your romance love aspect be between two cousins and that be your finale of this trilogy. It's just such a difference from what happens in 1 and 2 as far as thematically. It just sticks out. 
you know, I'm not going to say anything else about performances or otherwise. You know what? I'm not on screen. Every one of those people acted in those roles better than I could. It's a bizarre choice <laughs> to do the incest thing. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get know. it. And it's, and it's not really necessary to no. the movie. There's a lot of ways that you could have arranged that uh, decisions, you know, that Michael and Vinny could have outside of him. Uh, starting a relationship up with his cousin. You know, we could spend a whole episode yeah. dedicated to Godfather 3. Let us know if you if you want us to. We'll leave it to the comments, see what people think. But there's a complete trilogy. We do get a, a satisfying end to Michael Corleone. I think, yes. you know, seeing him as an old man, you know, wearing sweaters and like kind of looking frail, um, but still maintain you know and and having all this like just riddled with guilt kind of hanging over his head at the end uh i don't know it it has there's a lot of impact there at the end interesting too the the end of his life or leading up to is completely different than his father's who is although aging is still i mean he ends with a heart attack but he's like happy and you know retired and happy and michael is not and you know how I feel about Andy Garcia. I, I mean, I've, I've you couldn't met... help yourself, could you? No, I'm, I'm actually. <laughs> see, you know what? You're, you're, you're jumping ahead of me here. I'm pulling a uh, sunny on you. I apologize. I was actually, I apologize. You, you thought I was gonna say something disparaging about Mr. Garcia, and I was actually gonna say, I know I've bad mouthed them before on this podcast, but actually, in rewatching Godfather Three, uh, in the re-edit that they did, I think he's the best person that could have been cast for that role i don't know that there'd be another person uh, of that time period of that age that could have done a better job than andy garcia pretty slick scene where he's like dressed as the cop you know and he's like Zaza. I'm like, mm-hmm. it is but outside of that i i don't i don't watch many garcia movies <laughs> your your feelings towards mr garcia never fail to make me laugh because he's so inoffensive to me in that 2016 Ghostbusters, um, he has one of the best lines in that movie when Kristen Wiig says, don't be the mayor in Jaws. He's like, yeah, I guess actually she has the best line. His reaction is best. We posted about the new Ghostbusters movie uh, in Yikes. relation to the 2016. And man, people got super pissed in our comment section. There was some people saying, oh, yeah, you guys, there's like fake fans of answer the call the 2016 movie and just Uh like you know that i was a a true honest fan of that movie because i didn't care that andy garcia was in it i still i still thought it was a great movie like andy garcia couldn't ruin that movie for me and andy garcia can ruin almost every movie for you if he's in it yeah yeah you know what it really shows your objectivity anyway anyway sorry to go off on a garcia tangent but the untouchables he's bad in that too I mean that might not no, be your that might not be your bag either. He's uh why don't you just go well should we just talk about just, an old school mob just, movie. Should we just stop <laughs> talking about the Godfather and we'll open up IMDb. <laughs> we'll just go through Andy Garcia's like filmography and like I'll tell you which ones I, I like or dislike the most. Mm-hmm. Um no he's he's fine in Untouchables. We should move on to our picks of the week. We'll come back, we'll do some final thoughts on the Godfather, uh, Lindsay you chose another Coppola movie with Peggy Sue Got Married. What can you tell me about that? 
My decision to do this 1986 Francis Ford Coppola film, Peggy Sue Got Married, was really simple for me. With doing an entire episode on one of Coppola's best-known films, I wanted to pair it with the first film I ever saw of his, which has also become one of the most under-discussed in his filmography. The movie stars one of my all-time favorites, Kathleen Turner, as the title character, Peggy Sue, who, while attending her 25th high school reunion, becomes so overwhelmed by the past and present coming together that she passes out losing consciousness for a good long while. And we don't rejoin present-day 1986 Peggy Sue until the last few minutes of the movie. Instead, the majority of the story takes place in Peggy Sue's high school years, like she jumps back in time, taking with her the knowledge of her future self, but getting to revisit and interact with her high school life. This isn't a Ghost of Christmas Past or Back to the Future setup. Think more of Wizard of Oz. I bring up these time travel movies because I want it to be really clear that Peggy Sue Got Married is its own thing, not a generic copy. The time travel storyline has been done to death, but this film's husband and wife team Arlene Sarner and Jerry Lichting really zero in on the emotional aspect of revisiting your past. As the adult that you are now, how would you feel seeing family members who've passed away? What would you want to tell these people that you never did? How would you feel being with your high school sweetheart who you'd later marry and have kids with, but ultimately you'd end up in divorce? Peggy Sue is timeless in its themes and plays upon that nagging feeling probably all of us have felt. What would you do if you had the chance to re-examine your past choices? Predominantly, this film is a comedy, but the real-life aspects, moments of undeniable sentimentality, and the heartache of seeing what you can't change add somewhat of a somber tone. Peggy Sue interacts with her friends from high school with her adult mind, more than curious but certainly different from her teenage self. Kathleen Turner is captivating, always has been. Her subtle touches of teenage behavior are choice, and as Turner described, she had to have the perkiness of a teenager but with the slower thought process of a woman in her 40s. Now, Turner's run the gamut of roles offered to women, and Peggy Sue is an absolute must-see for anyone who appreciates her or methodical acting through body language. She forms a cohesive, well-developed portrayal of a woman truly living in an out-of-body experience. Peggy Sue's convinced she's either dead or has time-traveled. She has no idea what's actually happened to her. No makeup tricks were used for Turner. Pretty straightforward and smart of Coppola. You're already asking the audience to believe the unbelievable. Just leave out the wrinkles and go with her existing youthful glow, which can transcend decades. There's also an understated color tone element Coppola uses for this 1960 world. There's a washed out veneer on everything from the trees and sidewalks to the clothes characters are wearing. The subtle dreamlike quality is ever so slightly different enough from the 86 world, but covertly lulls the viewer into believing this reality of Peggy Sue. And though this movie rides completely on Turner and Coppola visually translating the story, it's also a total blast when it comes to the cast. Supporting roles from Jim Carrey and Helen Hunt, Joan Allen and Kevin J. O'Connor in their debut roles, legendary actress Marino Sullivan, and a teenage Sofia Coppola as Peggy Sue's younger sister. Sofia fits well into this world as a little sister for all of you Godfather 3 smack talkers out there, just FYI. The main co-star of Peggy Sue Got Married is Nicolas Cage, yet another famous face from the Coppola family. Playing Peggy Sue's high school love, Crazy Charlie, once a popular crooner with dreams of making it big in music, then turns into a sad sack philandering appliance salesman later in life, Cage gives an unforgettable performance. Complete with an over-the-top, nasally voice and false teeth, the experience of his character could greatly vary from person to person. Even the older version of Charlie is exaggerated. Cage's follow-through is undeniable, but might rub you the wrong way. 
Kathleen Turner was not a fan of her co-star's artistic decisions, but you'd never know this from their performance together on screen. And reportedly, Uncle Coppola wasn't the biggest fan either, but who knows the truth anymore. There's not a decade that'll go by where this movie will be unrelatable in its themes. Of course, times have changed, but we humans still behave in the same ways. Doesn't matter the time period. Peggy Sue's an odd movie, floating into this time just as gently as we flow out of it as the credits roll. I was really pleased to learn that this film was highly praised across the board when it was released, but it'd be nice if it were rediscovered nowadays as a bright spot in Coppola's career. I have to say, I love your love for this movie. (laughs) And it's one that I I need to revisit. I think I watched this movie maybe like two or three years before we met. I still think it's a movie that I don't quite appreciate and a very interesting movie in Coppola's career. I learned a little bit of behind the scenes uh, making of this film, but I guess they were really under the gun a lot and had to get this movie done pretty quickly and filmed every day of the week for close to 20 hours a day like it was it was kind of maddening for everyone involved but from what I can understand aside from some creative differences with Nicolas Cage it was like a good experience and everybody like really loved this movie that was involved with it and honestly this movie was a part of my childhood and I had no idea that even people gave it such critical praise when it came out and I was yeah, I, I love yeah, knowing that. This definitely was one that was on TV, like on, all the time. All the time. All when the I time. Was a kid. Yeah, always <laughs> yeah. on. All right, Justin, it's your turn. What is your pick of the week? My pick was an early Michael Mann film, Thief, with James Caan. And there's a little bit of a mob connection, too, in this movie, which is another reason why I thought it would fit well with The Godfather. And I think a majority of people would say that Heat is Michael Mann's best movie, but I'm going to say it here on the podcast that I think Thief is a much better film than Heat. It's my favorite Michael Mann film, and it's probably my favorite James Caan performance. Thief is a somewhat simple story. Uh, James Caan plays Frank. He's a uh, safe cracker in Chicago. He's really good at what he does. He works with a partner played by James Belushi, and he's got a pretty good deal set up. He's got someone that sets up the jobs for him. He has someone that helps develop the tools that he uses to crack these safes. He's very smart. He weighs the risks involved. He weighs how much he's going to get paid involved. It's a movie where the lead character really has thought things out. It doesn't feel like a straight up like action type movie. Um, it's also a movie too where like everybody seems like they can double cross somebody at any minute, whether it be cops or whether it be the mob. Even though James Conn is not a nice guy in this In some ways, he's the anti-hero. He's like the only one that is kind of honest at what he does, and he says what he means. The the only part of the story is one that we've seen so many times in movies. He wants to do one last score so that he can retire and start a family. There's one scene in particular, which I believe James Caan has said to be his favorite performance or the favorite scene that he's ever done. And it's such a great scene where he tells Tuesday Weld, uh, the woman that he wants to start a family with, kind of his plan. You know, he wants to get out of this world of what he's doing and he he wants to go straight, but he gets tied up into the mob. They want him to do this job. He's like, I'm I'm just going to do this one last job. But once he does it, they're like, no, you're, you're staying with us. You're not, you're going to keep doing more work for us. They force his hand and he, he has to do a job that is very high risk. And so the last part of the movie is just him trying to figure out how he's going to pull off this job This is early 80s, 
but it's paced like a 70s movie. It has a very slow pace. It takes its time, but I don't think it's boring at all. You know, James Caan is like a very interesting character. Again, I said this earlier, but I just don't feel like there's anybody like a James Caan today, like someone who's like a tough guy, um, but at the same time can be very sensitive and be very honest with what he's doing. Like he can have these like five minute scenes where he sits down and talks about his life and talks about what he wants to do. And it feels totally normal. And the movie kind of slows down, but you do feel for James Conn's character. And I think it, it makes it a more personal movie. It's also probably one of the better shot movies of the early eighties. It's super gritty, but like very stylized. It's like, it's almost, I, I think they like, like hose down, like everywhere they were. So everything's like really wet, like a really rainy. And there's like reflection of all the light, city lights in the reflection of the rain on the streets. And a lot of the tools that James Conn's using when they're, when he's doing the safe cracking is just watching what they're doing is like very, very interesting and how it's composed when they're trying to break into the safes. The mob stuff is probably the part of the movie that feels like maybe the most low rent. Uh, Robert Prosky, who you've seen in a lot of movies, he's sort of the head guy. And it does have that very sort of like goofy mobbish type henchman. And then like one guy's like, ah, you're going to do the job, kid. You understand, you know, that sort of business. And they're like meeting two cars, meeting like, you know, by the river, like underneath a viaduct somewhere to set all their deals, you know, it's like much, much different from the Godfather where they hold all their meetings, in like very nice offices at their homes. There's like, what's like some scummy place that we could meet in the city to like, uh, talk about what we're going to do. But this movie is really fantastic to me. This is just one of those movies that they really don't make anymore. I highly recommend it. It's currently on Pluto TV. Um, again, one of just my favorite performances by James Caan and if you like Michael Mann, but you haven't seen his early works, um, I, th I think this is this is the best thing that he's ever done. I have yet to see this, Justin, but what I have looked up about it, the colors and general vibe of it seem like something that I would want to watch at night and get really lost in. And I love that it's set in Chicago. I know that there's a scene outside the Green Mill. It looks like a really interesting movie. And I haven't even, I didn't even bring up the soundtrack to this is freaking amazing. If you like very dreamy synth sounds, like Tangerine Dream does the uh, uh, soundtrack to this Ooh. movie, the soundtrack is is awesome. It's just, just listening to the soundtrack alone, not not even watching the movie, but it, it adds so much atmosphere to the already like gritty and stylized look of the movie. Right there, that completely sells it for me. Tangerine Dream mixed with how this movie looks visually and what you've told us about it. Yeah, I want to watch this. Those are our picks. Peggy Sue Got Married in Thief. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun.
it'd be almost impossible to not bring up the one Coppola who's become pretty great friends with Billy since doing a film which changed both of their lives. Of course, I'm talking about filmmaker Sofia Coppola and the first of three films they've done together so far, Lost in Translation. Bill's never been an easy guy to track down when it comes to being in a movie. Right down to his first film, Ivan Reitman's Meatballs, there's always some story of how Billy ended up in every film. For Lost in Translation, without Sophia's dedication to casting the only man she saw for the role, this movie would have never existed. When I was writing it, I was picturing Bill, and he really inspired it, Sophia told the Daily Beast, and I wasn't going to make the movie without him, so I was pretty determined to convince him. There isn't another guy like Bill Murray out there. He was her muse. Just because he's impossible to track down and elusive wasn't going to stop her, even when no one believed she could get him. She had tracked down his 800 number and left a voicemail, which she said she called every day. Apparently, he did call her back once, a month later, but her phone wasn't working correctly. Girl was grasping at straws and contacting anyone she could. I called Al Pacino, she confessed to the AFI movie club. Obviously, she'd known him through her dad, but didn't know him that well. She'd heard Pacino lived in the same town outside New York that Bill lived in. So I call and I said, Hi, Al. I'm doing this movie. And Pacino's just trying to catch up with her, you know, oh, Sophia, how are things? You know, that sort of thing. And Sophia just had tunnel vision and blurted out, I'm wondering if you know Bill Murray. Well, Pacino was of no help in this department. Sophia felt totally silly, especially after telling her dad and then Francis saying something like, are you crazy? You can't ask another actor that. She spent a good year trying to find Bill, asking random people who knew him through the golf scene. Her unabashed determination about finding him led to mutual friend, writer, director, producer Mitch Glazer. She showed Glazer a very, very early 10-page version of Lost in Translation. Sophia grew up in a family that gets things done, Glazer told the New York Times, and he knew she'd written this part for Bill, and he appreciated that such a young talent thought he was the only guy who could pull off a character with such a unique blend of humor and sadness. When she was pursuing Bill, I talked to her more than I talked to my wife. She talked to me a thousand times in that sweet way, but persistent. Stalking Bill had become Sophia's job. In more than 20 years of friendship, I have never said anything was perfect for Bill, and this time I did. But Bill's difficult. He just wouldn't give anyone an answer, Mitch said. Sophia's well of resources wasn't dry just yet, determined and also knowing she's not making this movie without Bill. Everything depended on his involvement, despite everyone telling her she'd needed a backup plan, a thought Sophia had never entertained. Enter another creative partner or friend of Bill's, writer-director Wes Anderson. And if you remember from our episode on Rushmore, it was Sophia who had recommended her cousin Jason Schwartzman for the lead role in that film, and that film positively altered the lives of so many involved. I was lobbying for Sophia, West told the New York Times. I think Sophia unknowingly inspires that protectiveness. You want to help her, to look out for her. She turns everyone into her big brother. So one mid-July in New York, Billy, Mitch Glazer, and wife, actor Kelly Lynch, were having lunch. Mitch invites Sophia. When I saw them together, I realized it was done. He was going to do the movie, Mitch said. The following evening, Wes Anderson ended up joining Sophia and Bill for dinner, and even he was left with the same feeling. It was one of those patented Bill evenings. He was driving, and he went through a red light, then reversed his car and ducked into a Japanese place only he could see. By the time the sake came, I knew he was going to do the movie. But just because Bill had been wooed into entertaining the idea of the script, it didn't mean it still wasn't a gamble. The whole thing felt slight, which was a little troubling, Bill said. 
but Sophia had a way of saying her dream wouldn't come true unless I did the movie. Sophia's very good on the phone, and she spent a lot of time getting me to be the guy. And in the end, I felt like I couldn't let her down. You can't ruin somebody's dream. With the promise of Bill starring in the movie, Sophia started spending money to get the production started in Japan. Notice I say promise, because Bill never signed a contract. I just figured if he said he was going to show up, he would, Sophia said. And he ended up coming a few days before we started shooting. It wasn't real for her until Bill actually landed in Japan and a wave of relief washed over her, having described this year-long strife as completely excruciating. In my research, I found an interview with Sophia and Rashida Jones talking about their time filming On the Rocks, co-starring Billy, who had also only verbally agreed to be in the film. I had someone babysitting my phone just in case Bill Murray called, Sophia told The Hollywood Reporter. I'm glad Rashida remembered that because I'd blocked it all out. The trauma of hunting down Bill. I know this was Godfather adjacent, but you know, sharing the Coppola family struggles in filmmaking is never not entertaining, especially when it comes down to following through on your vision when the odds are against you. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to connect Sophia Coppola to this. It seemed like a, a shoe in here for a yeah. moment, but it, it, it's still uh, wild to me that uh, Sophia Coppola, as, as much criticism that she got for Godfather 3, went on <laughs> to be one of the top filmmakers of you know of the last 20 years i need to revisit lost in translation it's been since it came out when i saw it last it's probably no secret that i think that that movie is absolutely wonderful yeah i have a feeling that's gonna (laughs) pop up in an episode eventually here well thank you for that murray moment anytime did you have any final thoughts on the godfather before we wrap things up here one of those special just by chance things that happens during the filming of a movie when something's not working out. The actor Lenny Montana, who plays Luca Brasi in the film, in the beginning of the movie, it starts out at Don Corleone's daughter's wedding, and um, a few people are coming in and talking to him, and, and one guy, Luca, comes in, and he's giving him his blessings on the day of his daughter's wedding and hoping that her first child is a masculine child. You know this scene. If you know this movie, you do. Um this is also an incredibly awkward scene and it, it's played that way. Like you, you understand that the character of Luca is uncomfortable, nervous talking to Don Corleone. Well, in fact, the actor was not delivering his lines very well. Brando was kind of messing with him a little bit, giving him some guff, he even had a note on his forehead that said F you. It was just not going smoothly. So Lenny Montana takes some time, steps outside, and is rehearsing his lines for that scene in the hopes, I think, to maybe do a reshoot. Well, Coppola sees this and thinks, oh, man, this is perfect. Actually, let's let's film him rehearsing what he's going to say to Don Corleone before he goes in there. So what we see in the movie is actually Lenny Montana practicing what he's going to say because he actually was very nervous but the two things were filmed flip-flop and one to you know make up for the lack of a performance but it totally adds some humor in that beginning I love that part I would have never thought that it had anything to do with that actor not performing well in the scene it's a great example of a really smart director like finding a way to to fix something instead of like having it kill their whole day in momentum yeah say let's do a pickup and and make it part of the story. And make it something that's completely memorable. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but I was kind of looking around, and I, uh, when I was looking at some behind-the-scenes information on The Godfather, I found out that there's actually going to be a miniseries on the making of The Godfather, like a like a narrative miniseries, 
with actors playing Francis Ford Coppola and the Godfather cast and Robert Evans. Whoa. Um, so Barry Levinson is going to be directing this thing. Okay. Um, big time yeah. Hollywood director, yeah, Oscar yeah. winning director. Uh, he'll be directing it. Oscar Isaac is tapped to play Francis Ford Coppola. Jake Gyllenhaal tapped to play Robert Evans. Okay. And it's going to be heavily. Uh, I can see I, that I think, actually. Supposedly the script is leaning heavily on Robert Evans and kind of all the stuff that he had to go through. A lot of the stuff that we talked about in this episode and they did say that coppola has given it his blessing and he said and i quote any movie that barry levinson makes about anything will be interesting and worthwhile exclamation point okay so coppola's coppola's all in on the making of this so interesting it's being I know. getting turned that's into a miniseries crazy, yeah. yeah that's awesome yeah well we hope you've enjoyed our episode on the godfather uh i know it was a long one but there's a lot of information to pack into this thing. Coming up next, uh, we've been it's been pretty serious these last three episodes, so we're going to dial up the humor. Uh, this is something we've been talking about doing for several years, but we're going to do a full-on Adam Sandler episode focusing on The Wedding Singer, so that's coming up next. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. We also have a YouTube channel channel please subscribe you can check out all our old episodes there as well as on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com and if you'd like to reach us for any reason you can at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reber thanks so much for listening thank you